You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Hello and welcome to the City of Man podcast. My name is Coyle Neal. I'm an associate professor of political science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Uh, For obvious reasons, every nation is reliant on agriculture, but America seems to have a special relationship with its land uh, and with those who make their living by farming and ranching. Uh, I think all Americans are a little bit agrarian at heart by default. We we tend to assume that if you grew up on a ranch or, or, or on a farm, you're, you're harder working, you're more virtuous, you're, you're living the Jeffersonian ideal. Uh, and, and yet the romanticism of our view of farm life doesn't necessarily line up with the reality on the ground, uh, either now or in the past. Uh, the work is hard, the pay is low. Uh, and even as the advanced technologies help our agricultural production rates skyrocket, there, there are fewer and fewer people willing to work in agriculture. Uh, so, for example, in 1900, 40% of Americans worked in agriculture, while 60% of Americans lived in rural communities, small towns and the like. Uh, today, about 20% of Americans live in rural America, with fewer than 2% living on farms. Uh, and even that number is deceptive. Uh, that, that 2%, uh, just because you're living on a farm, doesn't necessarily mean that you are a farmer or rancher full-time. Uh, most of that 2% uh, is, well, I, I could keep throwing stats at you, but uh, rather than doing that, let me introduce our guest for today. Uh, Dr. Mark Weatherington is a historian and writer who lives in Georgia. Uh, he's the author of the new book, American Agriculture, From Farm Families to Agribusiness. Uh, Dr. Weatherington, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Good morning, Coyle. Nice to see you. Uh, now, uh, I, I want to talk about the, the meat of the book, but let's uh, let's start with the, uh, the the sort of NPR-style question. Where where'd you get the idea? Where does this book come from? Uh, the book comes from um, uh, a friend of mine uh, who teaches history, and uh, his name's John David Smith, and he is an editor for uh, Realm and Littlefield, and that's an American Way series that he's an editor, and uh, they were looking for someone to to try to do um, a narrative history of uh, American agriculture. And um, I I was interested, so I sent a proposal in, and they accepted it, and I, I worked on the book, and uh, my starting place was really, um, in a way, my experience and memories from growing up in a small agricultural town in the southern part of Georgia. And when I started looking for a dissertation topic, I was surprised to find out that I could actually craft a dissertation around the agriculture and uh, changes in the landscapes that that happened in that area. At that time, dates were from 1860 to 1910. There was a lot of transition there, a lot of deforestation an end of self-sufficient, almost self-sufficient farming right. uh, communities. So that's that's sort of how I got into it. And then the question that emerged as I began to research is, and worked into the research was really, so how did we get where we are in American agriculture? 
And the story started with uh, Native American agriculture and then uh, European contact and then moved on really more or less chronologically. Well, and, and I, I think that's a, uh, uh, again, one more sort of sort of uh, overview question here. Uh, uh, what What is uh, American agriculture in sort of the big sense? I mean, we're, we're such a diverse nation in terms of geography, in terms of climate, uh, in terms of uh, the sorts of things you can raise. Uh, I mean, uh, what what was uh, the, the crops that were possible where I grew up in, in rural Montana, rural Wyoming, compared to the crops that were possible where you, where you grew up in in, uh, in Georgia, I think you said. Uh, those are, I mean, we might as well be two different nations there. So, so what is American agriculture in, in sort of any kind of meaningful big picture sense? Um, I, I looked at uh, beginning with the transition from Native American agriculture to uh, the impact of your American uh, settlement. and But the, 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 the real beginning in American agriculture is Native American agriculture. And uh, that was practiced um, all over the present-day U.S. Uh, using different, uh, maybe different crops, but, but the techniques were pretty much the same. It was hoe cultivation and, uh, and still some deforestation. Uh, corn was a central crop and a food crop. And so for me, uh, it was trying to understand um, the changes in the landscapes and the changes in societies that, that resulted from uh, that connection. Uh, and, and, and one of the things I found out was that uh, there was a change in uh, in farm management, farming in Native, many Native American communities was based on uh, women and children. And, uh, and by the time we get to, let's say, Louisville, Kentucky, where I am today, uh, that had gone from a matriarchal to a patriarchal system. The labor sources had changed from women, children, and, and, and mainly Native American men to clear land and do the large communal farming part of it. I had changed to more uh, slave labor for plantations. And in this community here and around the falls of the Ohio, there was a lot of tobacco and hemp. And eventually uh, community began to explore more with, uh, with diversified farming. But we're on the break here, the fault line between free – uh, free labor in uh, the north of the Ohio and slave labor to the south. So uh, I think the, the, the basic narrative of clearing the land, deforestation, the crop, the frontier crop was corn, uh, and it pretty much applies uh, in those early stages to, to most of the farming communities in America. Now, you get to a place where you can't grow maybe corn, but you can grow some kind of grain. Right. Uh, well, what is, uh, what is, what is your, your take, what is your analysis of the, the current state of American agriculture? So you, you talked a little bit about sort of the, the Native Americans and the transition in the early days. Uh, where are we at now? And, and then we'll ask kind of how, how we got from point A to point B. I think uh, right now uh, American agriculture is, is big. Uh, and I think it's probably too big. Uh, the three things I look at are uh, 
control consolidation and chemicals and I, I consolidation it just keeps going and going when I first heard the word consolidation I didn't know what it was it sounded like a big word but I think it had to do with uh, school consolidation and the schools in our communities were beginning to uh, group classes together uh, in uh, towns that were 15 miles away because it just really weren't enough students to keep the, the, the schools going. And I think that was a result of people moving off the land. Uh, and uh, the folks that came to that small town and, and brought their crops to market and shopped there were gone. And that's, you know, that was probably in the uh, 60s anyway, early 70s. So there's no school there now. So I think that if we look at it over time, there's been a continuing pattern of consolidation of um, companies that manufacture just about anything that that farmers need to farm. And then there's a consolidation of uh, processing. And I, I think that's, you know, I think we're at some sort of crossroads. You know, we either continue down the road of uh, industrial chemical farming or we we go down another road. So I don't know exactly what that looks like, but it may not be going back to uh, wagons and plows, but it, it's going to be something. I, I just think we're hitting a... I don't know. I, I think there's a it's, it's complicated. I think there's a lot of frustration because of a lack of control. Uh, uh, I mean, reflected in just the number of uh, farmer suicides. There's just a lot of a lot of uh, choices that need to be made. Yeah, and that's a uh, uh, it's it's something that presumably our listeners aren't aware of since you know they're statistically not living uh statistically not living on a farm uh but the uh even something like the the meat packing industry and you, you give the number in the book and i don't remember it off the top of my head which is a uh, failure as a show host but it, it's they're they're what like three or four i don't remember it either yeah really. it, uh in, in terms of the number of major meat packing plants in the country there are three or four of them i, I again i forget off the top of my head down to three now um, and, and that that's for the nation. Uh, now there are like local, you know, individual meat pack, you know, family owned or, or individual owned meat packing places. Uh, we have one down the road from us here. There's there's one in uh, in in uh, where near where I grew up in Montana, uh, but the uh, amount that those places are capable of handling is so small, uh, and that means that the price they have to charge for their work is so high that that basically no one can afford to. Uh, take large numbers of animals there, and you end up taking, you know, the deer that you shot uh, hunting or, or whatever. That's you end up using them for that sort of thing, uh, and your your uh, uh, livestock uh, that you're uh, raising to make a living have to go to the big guys, uh, which means that those three meatpacking plants uh, control the prices uh, yeah. for uh, for basically all of the ranchers in America, and and that's just with the meats. I I assume something is similar 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 is true on the grain side of things also, although I know much less about that. Yeah, it, the consolidation is, a, is is all the way across the, the board, uh, as far as I can tell. And uh, I think uh, uh, 
there was a farmer, I think it was in, from Nebraska, maybe with the Farm Bureau or the Farmers Union, who said something like, you know, as far as I can tell, as long as I've been farming, there's never been a consolidation that has benefited farmers. And I think there's this concern that the more consolidation there is, the uh, less uh, access to voice any kind of opinion um, is is a real concern. Uh, it's, it's a feeling of, of not being able to control uh, the world around you. And, uh, and to me, if you if you look at what has happened to the rural landscape in America, uh, is you just have to ride down the highway and, and look at the landscape, and you don't see a lot of people. Uh, and that that's that's you know touches on your point about how many people were living in rural America and farming in 1900 or 1920, and how many are out there today and and farming. It's less than two percent so the rural population of course you, you don't have to be a farmer to live in rural america but you know right I especially think- post-covid right that's uh yeah but before we ask the sort of how did we get to this consolidation point uh i do want to owner do a talk i do want to talk a little bit about the chemical side of things uh because i think that's kind of an interesting one i am uh i'm of mixed thoughts uh, about chemicals in in agriculture uh Obviously, no one, no one wants to eat food that is coated in pesticide. Uh, right. But we all like eating food, and without the pesticide, the the grasshoppers get it. So how do we uh, how do we balance all of that? And and of course, GMO is sort of the the direction where all of that's going now, where you don't need the pesticides because they can breed the plants that are pest resistant. But we're not we're not quite fully there yet, uh, so we're still dealing with chemicals. Uh, how how do we navigate that? Well, you know, my only advice would be we try to avoid them if we can. And uh, but, yeah, you can't. I don't know that you can raise enough grain, for example, corn, whatever, to feed uh, large populations without some sort of chemical, um, pesticide, fertilizer, whatever. At the same time, when we look at the corn crop. What is it? Uh, maybe 25% of it goes to human consumption, and the rest of it is for animal feed and uh, ethanol, some sort of fuel production. So maybe you know we use some other approach to the to the to the grains we actually consume as human beings. Um, I mean, it's 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 crazy to me to think about how. So much of the corn crop could be going to not animals, but to machines um, in the form of fuel mechanization. I mean, it's just the to me the end of the road uh, coil on on that pathway is almost you know science fiction. It seems. Like. <laughs> Uh, and there, there are political issues at play there too. Uh, John John Boehner, in his uh, his recent autobiography about his time as Speaker of the House, uh, talked about when he was a, a young congressman. He made some offhanded comment about corn was dumb and they needed to stop the subsidies for ethanol. And he said that was he got more blowback about that than anything else he ever said. Uh, the uh, uh, the ethanol companies and the corn growers they they harassed like. Average citizens in his district were getting harassed because of this offhand comment he made. Uh, so there, there's political powers at work there too. Not to sound too conspiracy theory-ish, but uh, 
one of the big uh, questions about uh, even moving down a different path. What we're on today is 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 it insurmountable? I mean, there's such a huge uh, block of opposition to anything uh, uh, you know that would help people uh, overcome. I guess the the, the giant uh, lobbies in Washington. Yeah, and and uh, the the other side in in defense of the lobbies, right? Not, not not in defense of the lobbies, but in defense of the state of consolidated agriculture. Uh, mild mild defense. Uh, our production rates really are phenomenal, and, and uh, so and and I don't remember if you include this in the book or not. Uh, but the the amount of food we produce, even with so many fewer people involved in it, uh, even with uh, uh, the the small number of people who actually work in agriculture today, uh, uh, even with that, uh, our output is amazing. I mean, we really do feed a huge chunk of the world, uh, disproportionate to the number of people doing the agriculture. So, uh, were I a lobbyist, I would say, yeah, look, even even if only twenty five percent of the corn we grow uh, goes to human consumption. Uh, we're still feeding a huge chunk of the world with that. And do we really want to mess with that? Well, I can't answer that question. <laughs> I, I think there's still, well, we don't want people to starve, right? Yep. And, and we want people to not only, uh, we want people not only not to starve, we want them to be able to afford the, the food that, that's available. right? We, we well, don't want there just to be food available. We want it to be cheap food. So It'll be food that's not harmful in some way. Right. So yeah, I mean that's that's sort of the the catch twenty two, right? You can have the uh, the non chemical food grown by the the local independent farmer, if you can afford it, uh, or you can have the the loaf of Wonder Bread full of you know corn syrup uh, from the factory farm, uh, and you can pay less than a dollar for it, uh, or or I guess given inflation over the last year, probably a little bit more than a dollar for it now. Probably, but is there a way coil to? I don't know the answer to this, but is there a way to provide some other choice? I mean, I don't, that's one of the questions I think we have to figure out if we're going to, if we're going to change the, the path of, uh, of agriculture. Sure. And maybe that there's not a lot of people that, that believe in that, but I would hope that is, I, it's just in a way to me to look at the landscape, to look at rural America now and, uh, and I'm not trying, you know, I have to be careful not to be nostalgic and romantic about it. But at the same time, it seems like there were uh, a sense, of, there was a sense of community. And to see now that, that most of those communities are are basically just dying. Uh, there's still people in them, there's still activity, but even the memories and the memory of that community. What happens when you get so far away from uh, another alternative that nobody remembers it. Yeah. Like for me, I, if I had to go out and uh, I uh, had to grow enough food to feed myself, I'd probably be done for in a week. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really. I, I, and so I think there's a knowledge question there. I mean, if we wanted to rebuild rural America would that be who would who would do that? Would that be humans, or would that be um, you know mechanization? 
addition? I mean, what what would happen? Because I think if a rebuild is uh, repeopling the land would be a component part of that, I would hope. Uh, but now you can go, you can just take a, you've done this, you know, this, you, 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 I would just say, get off the interstate and take a drive down a, a road and come to a town and look at it and see what it says to you. Uh, and the, I, I don't know, I imagine a lot of your listeners uh, maybe live in towns. It's just, uh, it was troubling to me. Sure. Well, and, and ironically, uh, with, uh, and this is, Obviously, this happened after the bulk of your book was written, but COVID has uh, driven people from the cities back into not not maybe full bore rural America, but at least smaller towns. There there is some uh, vi- revitalization going on because of that, uh, as as people are fleeing New York and Chicago and and so forth. Um, I don't know if the end result will be uh, you know recreation of small town America from 40 years ago, but uh, there are at least more people. Uh, who are who are now officially living in rural America today than there were a year and a half ago at this time, and no, there's right. no way to have predicted that. Yeah, and of course. The other hand on on science and technology and engineering is uh, part of the answer to COVID comes from that sector of our knowledge. Uh, vaccinations. I'm not going to, but you you know the same science, the same group and uh, occupational, professional, uh, whatever, that uh, engineers uh, seed genetically uh, also helps provide defenses against um, COVID. Well, we should uh, uh, we should talk about how we got to where we're at. So, so consolidation uh, and control, the the shrinking of the family farm and the growth of the factory farm is is a major major theme in the second part of your book. Uh, and you you talk about this not as sort of an organic evolution, uh, but as an intentional choice promoted by the government. Uh, I forget which you know Department of Agriculture or Interior or whatever. Uh, back in the 60s and 70s uh, that we're now seeing the results of. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I think part of it started uh, in the uh, 20s were not good, was not a good decade for farming in America. And that was followed by the Great Depression, which wasn't <laughs> a good decade either. And then uh, we're into uh, the New Deal programs in which, you know, the basic idea was that the problem with a rural America and farming America is, is, is it's so good at what it's doing is it's overproduction. So we need to cut back on uh, production of uh, agricultural products. And one way to do that is to uh, move people off farmland. And I think that's one uh, a step. The second step was really World War II, which moved a lot of people off of rural landscapes and uh, they found jobs in uh, in cities or they ended up in the military and uh, you know in, in places like uh, Detroit uh, or in Cincinnati um, manufacturing um, tanks and trucks and jeeps and airplanes and whatever and uh, and then ended up in the military overseas uh, mostly in and when they came home, uh, a lot of them did come from rural America. They basically uh, had a decision to make. There were chances to go to school on the GI Bill for some people. Uh, 
to buy a home to the the idea of being uh, uh, in a, a large or small town uh, in the middle class, for example, becomes more realizable. And I think the, that was another step. And then the third step was in the 60s and 70s, the idea that to keep this momentum going and and I'm not saying it was one continuous line, but if you add it up and look at it, uh, was to begin to make farms more efficient. And so the way you do that is, it was the, the whole get bigger, get out kind of idea. And uh, uh, so what you end up with is a lot more people moving off the landscape. And all of these programs, I don't think, uh, were necessarily meant to harm people, but once you leave the land, where do you go? And I don't think there was, after the war, a whole lot of uh, capacity for urban areas to absorb uh, a lot of people and put them in um, an employment that could sustain them. Um, so now you're saying, and I agree that you know people are going back to rural areas because of COVID, but people after the war, some people after some years did try to go back, but it didn't seem to make a, a big difference. So it's, it's almost like the, the cumulative effect were clearings, just people being moved off the land. And that wasn't the first time in, in world history or even in uh, American history that those clearings have happened. That's wherever uh, in America uh, forests were cut over and turned into agriculture, the people that were there to begin with ended up having to make choices where they would didn't really have a choice to stay unless they went into sharecropping or tenant farming, something like that. Right, and and it is a it is a hard life to voluntarily choose. Right, you 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 have to really love it to say I'm going to do this thing that is brutal manual labor, doesn't really make any money, and uh, uh, I I will I, I will know that I will always have enough to eat, but beyond that, the, there aren't much in the way of amenities here. Right. Uh, yes, it it was. Uh, do I well. First of all, do I really want to go back to that life, let's say, during World War II? Or right. if I have a choice, do I want to do the hard labor of uh, agriculture? And so people that, um, that choose not to stay somehow believe they could find a better life somewhere else. And... Sometimes they didn't have quite as much of a choice. I mean, I think the uh, African Americans, a lot of people moved off the land, and some of them wanted to get out, but some stayed. So I look at it as a several decades long process that resulted in, you know, the emptying out of a lot of farm landscape. And though Sources I looked at said that really, in a way, the mechanization that came along didn't push people out. The mechanization took the place of people who had already gone. Right. So I think there's that, too. But today, I 
It's just to be a country, a nation, where so much of our culture was built around farms and farm uh, towns and villages, communities, their institutions, schools, churches, um, to see that go away uh, in the sense that it doesn't look the same. Now, maybe it's not supposed to. Maybe that's just the way things are. Maybe that's just the passage of time. Uh, but it's still just troubling to me. No, I, I, I don't disagree, although I also obviously chose not to stay on the on the farm, so I, I can't throw too many stones. I wasn't on a farm. I was in a small farming town, and really mm-hmm. I had friends that stayed and uh, maybe managed a Main Street store or something like that. It was a but it was usually a family business that they stayed in, and and uh, I I left. I chose to get out, and I don't I don't regret it now looking back. So maybe that makes me you know nostalgic and romantic about it all. But I still have uh, the memories that were are strong. But I do think we are at a kind of crossroads where we have to figure out what kind of farming we really want. And I don't think it's necessarily all or one. I don't think it's necessarily just the traditional farming path that that maybe is exemplified in organic farming uh, or, uh, you know, a giant uh, large-scale factory farming. There has to be a way to, if there are people who still would like, or people for the first time in their life wanted to farm on a small scale, like you, if you want to go back and open up a ranch, Start a ranch, continue a ranch. Uh, it seems like there would be a way to help people do that. And maybe I'm off base on that. I, I, I certainly know people who have done that. Um, I don't know anyone who has done that and not also done something else to support themselves. Right. So. So hobby farming, right, is 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 the uh, the the current way to do that. Have to do something else to save up enough money to get into it, and even then, it's a risk. Well, and and then we're back to you have to really love it, right? You 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 have to be the sort of person who wants to do the hard work and doesn't care that you are you are not going to make a living doing this. Right, right. You may you may be able to provide for your family, uh, maybe, but maybe. I just uh, I hope the, the the hope in me is that there is a way to work through this, so that the 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 big the compelling big in in every sector is not an, a roadblock an immovable roadblock that that uh, I mean I, I just I don't know that means I don't really have an answer to what the future would hold, but I hope it would hold uh, an opportunity for more people who are inclined to farm um, as a family to farm. And uh, I know there's a a position that, well, all our farms are already family farms, but uh, I went with uh, Paul Conkin's idea of farms being farms people live on, make the main farming decisions, uh, those kinds of things, you know, it's not some remote control from somewhere else and and under contract and all of that. So 
that's probably the historian in me just looking back instead of right yeah i i forget the uh I looked this up on the. Uh, I read this in your book, and then I looked up the contemporary USDA stats. And I again, I don't, I don't have them in front of me, but the, uh, the vast majority of people involved in agriculture in America are small farmers. But they, so you're talking just numbers of people, right? The the number of people who are involved of that, two million or whatever it is, a two percent of of Americans who live on a farm, under two percent of Americans who live on a farm. Uh, the vast majority of those are small family farmers, but they operate a minority of the land that is currently in agricultural operation and produce, uh, again, I do, it's somewhere between 20 and 40% of all agricultural production. So, I mean, it's, it's, they, are, they are the minority in, in every possible way, even though there's more of them. Uh, in terms of the the income, the production, and then the the amount of land, and some of that is just physical limitation. So my my dad can only you know uh, can only manage so many acres. Uh, the the factory farm is always going to be able to do more than that, just because they they have the resources and employees and so forth. A uh, family, I, I mean, depending on where you're at, uh, the the ironically, the more fertile your land is, the the less of it you're going to be able to manage because it's gonna, it's going to take more of your attention. Uh, uh, so uh, the 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 family is is going to have sort of a natural limit uh, for how much time in, in a year it has to to take care of the land. Uh, so there's only so many acres. Um, yeah. So so the the family farm is it's interesting, uh, but it it's it's both the majority and the minority. I think that the criteria that uh, you know a family farm is uh, maybe I'm nostalgic again, but the family farm <laughs> people. Uh, family farm is a family, uh, or maybe an extended family, right. and they farm uh, land that they make the management decisions on. Right. It's not, you know, uh, basically controlled by a contract. There, and, right. and the connection with that, uh, someone like Wendell Berry would say, was if, was if you're farming under a contract, you know, does that really leave you the flexibility to be a good steward of the land? And, uh, you know, that's a that's a concern, too. Uh, part of the bigness coil that, that disturbs me uh, is um, the soil, the nutrition of the soil declining, uh, water quality declining. Um, those are the kinds of things that, were helped immensely when in the east anyway with uh with forest right soil regeneration i mean you know you could you could regenerate uh soil in the east but what are you going to do in the west where you had uh you know tall and short grass prairies how does that how does that happen i don't know yeah uh uh well and and again it was interesting to read through that uh uh in, in part because of, of where I grew up, my, my thought was, well, why, if you're that small family farmer, no, of course you're not going to destroy your own soil. You're, you're going to, you know, do crop rotation and you're going to give it a, uh, give it years fallow. And, and I mean, there, there are ways to manage that, but you have to know the ways to manage it, be willing to do it, uh, and be willing to leave fields fallow and, and put in crops that maybe don't make as much money and, uh, and so forth. Uh, and, I, I won't say that factory farms don't do that because I, I don't think that's true, uh, but there is maybe less concern to do that 
when you're not utterly dependent on the land. Uh, uh, and factory farmers tend, factory farms tend not to be. Uh, the, the small farmers are more likely to be utterly dependent. Uh, although I, I think you're, I, I appreciate your definition of, of the, the family farm. I, I think I would still want to add some kind of qualification about not only do they control the decisions that are made, uh, but they are also rely on it as a primary source of income. Right. Uh, w- without that, without that qualification, so I think of, and this this isn't to pick on the guy. I live just up on the right now. I live just up the road from John Ashcroft, uh, so the former Attorney General of the United States, talking head on Fox News, all of that. Uh, he will he will talk about uh, going you know going home to the farm. Uh, like all right, well look, I, I get what you're saying, but maybe in a technical sense your your home does fall under the family farm definition i doubt anyone's telling him what to do with his land uh and i'm sure it's small it, it doesn't it's not a factory farm but it i still want to say wait a second you're not a you're not a family farmer and uh i, I shouldn't pick he'll, he'll never hear this so who cares but uh i don't want to pick on him too much but uh that that sort of thing right uh Right. Uh, yeah, it's it's small, and yes, your family lives on it, and yes, you're making all of the choices, but in no way, shape, or form is that your livelihood. Right, and then there are the people that, uh, I forget who wrote the article about this, but it was interesting to me that, you know, we're at the top of the uh, um, agricultural ladder as far as subsidies, who are also on the Fortune 500 list. Yeah. And... Same same situation. I doubt that they actually get out. Uh, they probably go out maybe for a vacation. I don't know what their life is like, but they're so involved in um, in managing a farm from a remote location, uh, an urban area, right? At, uh, in New York, say, does that really qualify as a as a family farm, and, I, and and I'm sure there's a way that it does, but but it doesn't seem it sort of counters one's impression of what a family farm was. And I'm not again a family farm, you know, had to be a rough life. I, I appreciate what you're saying about that case, and it also raises a question about being in centers of power and lobby power. Right. Well, and I think there needs to be room for, uh, I mean, you're basically describing sharecropping, right? And, and I, I think there needs to be room for that also. So uh, I, I think of uh, just on the on the other side of the valley from, from where I grew up uh, is uh, the remnants of what was once the, the largest agricultural operation in the world. Uh, it was called uh, Campbell Farming. Uh, it's still pretty good sized, but it's it's not what it, what it was once. Um, the guy who managed that when I was growing up, uh, he'd, he'd grown up in the area, gotten the job as their their ranch manager uh even though he didn't own the land i i would be comfortable saying look he ran that like a family farm i mean he uh his his family lived there they took good care of the place it was his primary source of income uh but he didn't own it and like you said all of the subsidies didn't go to him they, they went to the the big corporation uh, the uh, eventually they they got bought out by the same guy who owns Little America and Sinclair Oil. So uh, it's even even less of a family farm now. Uh, but again, there there are still the people who are doing that work, even if they don't live on their own land. And they, and again, all of this gets really complicated, right? Uh, uh, in ways that if you're not there, you're never going to know. Yeah, when you uh, when you think about uh, the current state of agriculture and, and the 
it's hard to get your head around it. It's it's complex and it's complicated. Uh, definitions uh, right. left that people don't agree on. Uh, what is organic farming? You know. <laughs> yeah, we should. I need to do an episode on that at some point. It's uh, um, that's definitely another episode. Yeah. But, yeah. So I I don't know. I know in the last farm bill there was. Uh, I do think there are, are, are really are positive things that have happened. Uh, you know, no-till, low-till farming is is going to help uh, generate uh, better soil, better uh, put some nutrients back in the soil, not not deplow as much. Uh, but I just feel like there's um, there's some things that we could do as a nation, not not me as a person, but as a nation to uh, help people who would like to get into small-scale farming. I mean, this current generation of farmers are my age, and uh, a lot of them, and they're not going to uh, – there's going to be um, a shift in, in, in the group of uh, average farmers' ages who are in their mid or, or uh, late 60s. And obviously, a lot of that land might go to um, their heirs. But if nobody picks it up, a lot of it can go and just uh, roll right in the continuing uh, direction of consolidation. And I hope there's some future there for people. Yeah. But, you know, again, to me, that's a, an issue of education and, and memory. And the memory of that is, is going to be going away <clears throat> unless unless they're doing things like you your father uh who want to who can keep your hand in it and uh and hand those memories down but uh once the memories are gone uh you know somebody like me couldn't go out and do anything maybe uh raise some tomatoes or something like that but as far as far start somewhere <laughs> right well, as as we uh, as we bring this to it to an end here, uh, how should our uh, how should our listeners, who I assume mostly do not live on on, on farms or in rural America, just because most people don't, uh, uh, and again those who do almost certainly aren't doing that as their primary op- uh, uh, occupation, how how should uh, they be thinking about contemporary agriculture when they when they go to the grocery store uh, and see the you know 50 kinds of bread and potato chips in front of them? Uh, what, what are they supposed to do? Well, I hope what they would deal with maybe is, um, you know, they think about that, uh, how much they're getting for what they pay, uh, how how uh, affordable is it. But they think uh, beyond the, the monetary cost and what are the other costs to produce what they're consuming. And, and, and to me, those are environmental costs. It's the land again. It's back to the soil. Trying to make a choice that is uh, helping sustain helpful agriculture, I would say. Uh, hmm. I, I wish I had a better answer to that, but when I think about the, the, uh, going to the market, uh, just by walking in the store and buying food, they are participating in agriculture. I mean, they're consuming uh, agricultural products, and I would hope that there would be um, eventually some sort of uh, education uh, earlier in life for people on this. And it makes me 
um, happy to see schools that are doing their own versions of a victory garden or trying to teach teach students early in life uh, about growing something, growing a plant. Right, and and uh, I think uh, programs like FFA and 4-H are are doing more of that now than they did even 20 years ago when I when I was involved with them. Uh, at the, I mean, at the time, they just kind of assumed you knew all of that, so they focused on other stuff. And yeah. now I, I think they've stopped assuming that. I hope so, because I was in uh, 4-H uh, uh, in the, probably the 7th or 8th grade. I remember wearing the khaki pants and the white shirt. And yeah. But I don't remember anything. I don't remember what we talked about. And we were in the middle of a farming community. I mean, we have to – I guess we have to pay attention. <laughs> By the way, I have to pay attention to what's going on around us and, and uh, support um, me. I, I, uh, Glenn and I go to the farmer's market. Uh, we do what we can. We enjoy it. Uh, you know, the pandemic has put a, put a damper on the number of people going, but I talked to a fellow that has a booth there and raises, and he says that actually um, – Seems like more people are coming to farmers markets now. I don't know if that's a national trend or local. It is um, a problem that our uh, agriculture is something that we are all involved in, whether we're farming or not. And uh, uh, we're going to have to eat. I mean, wake up in the morning, you've had a meal, and before long, you're going to have another meal. And we have to thank uh, thank farmers for that. Uh, well. Uh- Dr. Rutherington, thank you so much for taking time to uh, to come on the show. Uh, thank you for writing this book. Listeners, please uh, do go out and pick up American Agriculture from Farm Families to Agribusiness. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good, thorough history of American agriculture and uh, something that, even as someone who grew up on a ranch, I didn't know a lot of that stuff. So I appreciate you writing it, and I uh, appreciate you taking time to come on here. Thank you, Cole. I enjoyed it. Well, thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the City of Man podcast. The City of Man is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Please check out the other podcasts in our family and get more information about this show or our show notes by visiting ChristianHumanist.org. Please also leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find our show. Like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash City of Man podcast or get in touch with us at City of Man podcast at gmail.com. This is Coyle Neal reminding you to render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's and render unto God those things that are God's. This land is your land and this land is my land from the California to the New York Island and the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters this land was made for you and me as I went a-walking that ribbon of high